0: Hi, welcome to episode two of Modus Operandi Flash Fiction. I'll be reading four more brilliant flash tales today for you, Um, so stay tuned. This is one that came out uh, in Punk Noir magazine this week, and it was prefaced with the line, If Bukowski wrote a high story, and... It was enough to make me leap into it very quickly, and I'm going to read it for you now. It's called Refinance by Brennan Burks. My dick was shriveled up in my hand when the robbery started. Go figure. Shouting. A single shot, probably into the ceiling. A little plaster raining down on the heads of bank patrons about to shit themselves. All the stuff you'd imagine. Meanwhile, I was standing there, one hand against the cold porcelain, another waiting for something to happen. I saw a doc last week. He called it urinary retention. Said it's either stress-induced or a symptom of another root cause. Basically, he doesn't know what the fuck it is. I saw it in his eyes. He looked at me like I'm a sad sack of bones. Poor excuse for a man kind of look. It's the same look Maureen gave me at least twice a day. She gave it to me before I left the house that morning. It was her idea to refinance. With my hours at the glass plant cut by a third and all. I floated the idea of her getting another shift at the hair salon. I flinched when she almost backhanded me. I was about to throw in the towel when the door burst open. Over my shoulder I saw a forest green ski mask and brown eyes. What the fuck are you doing? Ski mask asked. Trying to piss, I said. Christ, do you know what this is? A couple ways I could have answered that. I took the lighter route. Awkward? I think you're funny, you piece of shit. Ski mask cocked his head as he charged toward me. I stuffed my dick in my pants and turned to face him. Ready for a beating. When he slipped. Fell sideways. Next to one of those yellow, caution, wet floor signs. splintering crack, like he busted a rib or an elbow. Silver revolver went spinning. Stopped directly at my feet, while Ski Mask writhed in pain. I checked the door, looked around to see if anyone else had been hiding out in there. Just the two of us. I zipped up my jeans and squatted down. Turned the gun over in my hand. My daddy had a couple of guns. I wasn't a bad shot. When he died though, My brother Earl took everything. I didn't offer much of a fight. Go figure. I felt the weight in my hands, gripped the handle tight and closed my eyes. Ski mask's moans grew louder. I opened my eyes and took two steps toward him. Then I pulled his mask off, aimed a silver barrel between his eyes and pulled the trigger. We both wore blue jeans, so I slipped on his black denim jacket. Grabbed his leather gloves too for good measure, along with the forest green ski mask. My heart pounded like it hadn't in years when I left the restroom. Walked back into the bank lobby. Bodies face down on the marble floor, whimpering and sniffling. I saw a lump of a man by the door. Stool pitched over, bulging belly. A gash glowed red across the unconscious security guard's forehead. I think his name was Barrett. His brother Tommy worked second shift with me at the plant. I turned and saw two other ski masks staring at me, my finger tightening around the trigger. What the fuck, Jimmy? one of them asked, his eyes blue like cold crystal. I tried to flex my throat to sound like the gravelled voice of the man I'd just killed. Uh, just some asshole in the bathroom, nothing to worry about. The two ski masks looked at each other, I thought my number had been called, but then one tossed me a bag. Well, get your ass back here and start filling cash. My grip relaxed on the revolver. Then I walked behind the counter I'd stood in front of a hundred times and started filling. With more fucking cash than I'd ever touched in my life. Hundreds, fifties, twenties. I couldn't remember the last time I'd gone hard. Maureen surely hadn't helped on that front. But as I tossed sacks of money into the blue YMCA duffel bag, the inky smell of the bills filled my nose what it stood for in contrast to who I was, how I'd lived my life, and gave me an erection. We heard the whine of police sirens. The crystallized schema said, Let's move! I left cash spilling out of the open drawer, slung the heavy bag over my shoulder and started to follow him out the side door. A flash caught my eye. The doc's white hair. He was face down, shivering by the little wooden station in the middle of the lobby. A chained pen dangled close to his head. He looked up when I walked over. Snot on his lip. Red panicked eyes looking pathetic. I hiked a duffel all the way up my shoulder. Unzipped my jeans and let loose a deluge on the back of Doc's head. Most satisfying piss I ever took. Like the first time you pee off a bridge or cliff or someplace high up where it sprays into a void. The world just takes it. Someone gasped. Doc whimpered. The sound of splatter sucked out the rest of the silence. Are you fucking serious right now, Jimmy? Ski mask called from the side door. I turned. Gave half a smile. When you gotta go. Put your dick away and move your ass before the cops get here. Christ! I zipped up. Then I turned and followed my new friends. Glanced at the red sign with blue letters behind the counter before walking down a side hallway. I'd read it a hundred times, behind the white smiles, puffy faces of tellers. Opportunity today means possibility tomorrow. I started to laugh, kept laughing as I tossed the YMCA duffel, heavy with cash, up to one ski mask. The other grabbed my hand, helped me into the back of the truck, and we lay on our backs and rumbled away. testing myself early today um, with this flash piece that's inspired by the fiction of George V. Higgins so there's, it's quite heavy on the dialogue so we'll see how we get on with that Um, and it's Those Who Can't Be Told by Max Thrax They found Dave Ryan in Haverhill hiding in an empty house Know why we're here? Keating if it were just him, Liam said. We'd do it differently. Have a chat, a few drinks at the village. But it's not Keating's money. And it sure as hell isn't mine. It belongs to people who can't be told no. Dave wore a green jacket and patted his pockets. Need a smoke. Later. Tell me how you're getting ten by tomorrow. I don't have it. You'll get it. I got it from you, Liam. You gave me the loan. You work for Keating. Who the fuck are these people? Look, bud, you got no work. Your mom's dead. You're squatting on a track. One thing if you ripped off... Niall, who stood behind Liam, said. Bad form, like. Liam wanted to turn his head and glare at him. He kept his eyes on Dave Ryan. My dad, my, my dad's sick. Liam waved at the works on the floor. Sure, he's waiting on your call. Niall got beaten up on his last job and beaten again when he challenged one of Keating's mob for laughing. Unlike other cowboys who flew to Boston from Limerick, he never claimed to be from Moy Ross or the tougher estates, but fear was a liability for big men. Sweating through the back of his shirt, he pinned Dave's neck against the wall with his forearm. Found your hole, Niall said. Suppose more than one? Off him. Fucking mank bastard. Dave dropped to the floor and his elbows coughed. I don't have it. At least you're paying attention, Beam said. Anyone you know, Dave? Anyone with money? The man sat up and cried. Don't worry, Dave. I know a place. Lots of money. It's called a bank. A, a b- b- bank? You're going to rob a bank? And I'll bounced Dave's head off the wall. Enough, bastard. I need a smoke Bank first. I can't I can't rob a bank, Dave said. And Nile reared back to hit him. Hold on, Liam said. Dave, you can rob a bank. you are good at stealing, right? You eat today? Did yeah. yeah. w- did <da-d-dow> Mank bastard. Liam shot Niall an irritated glance, returned to Dave. You ate today. You stole from us. You boosted, you stole. You slept under this roof, you stole. And if you steal one more time, it makes no difference. Niall pulled Dave up from the floor. A dog barked from the blocks beyond the park. Liam turned his head towards Niall and saw the muzzle flash. Ears ringing, he slumped over on his side. What was that? Dave lay on his back on the floor, half his skull gone. He he were reaching in his jacket like... Liam placed his left hand over his nose and mouth. His right picked through Dave's jacket until he thumbed a crumpled pack of cigarettes. "I told you," he said, "no fucking guns." Could have been your life," Niall said. "How am I to know if it were only smokes?" When the noise in his ears subsided, Liam phoned Keating. He did what? Brains on the wall," Liam told Keating. The state of him. Ah, sure. Never expected Dave to make it. Or Niall. What does that mean? Drive Dave's car to New Hampshire. Dump the car. Dump the body. Dump Niall. Liam's left ear rang again and he flinched. Bury him? The fucker weighs 250 easy. Stand to the rear, Keating said, and kick him down. Take the off. I won't forget my bud Liam Stokes. Niall sat below a window, gazing at his shoelaces. Keating said no worries. decent." They tied a contractor bag around Dave's neck and hauled the corpse to Niall's trunk. See you in the mountains, Stokesy? It's Liam. Your grandman. Thanks for the word. Get this done. We'll make the village by noon. The village? Ah, can't be drinking there. How about Hogan's? Fine. Liam said, opening the car door. Be right behind you. The end. Uh, Here's one by one of my favourite writers in the indie crime scene, uh, Preston Lang. This is from his collection, This Won't Work, and it's called Spray. He'd called himself Fitzley, back when he started tagging the side of Fitzgibbon's Art Supply, a white canvas that faced onto Broadway at 203rd Street under the IRT tracks. Mr Fitzgibbon, who'd once accused him of stealing a can of rust Red, whitewashed the building four times before giving up, and soon after, Fitzley's bold, funky letters conquered the neighbourhood. From there he moved on to daring declarations on the undersides of bridges and full visual narratives that ran the lengths of express trains. Now writing as Slay, he became one of the principals of 70s graffiti. Elusive and regal, the stuff of legends. Slay calmly finishing a midnight job on the Whitestone Bridge, while NYPD threw trash at his head and waited for him to climb up into their custody. When he disappeared into the East River... The cops assumed he died in the water. But of course, he wasn't finished. There were those tunnels on Staten Island, done up like cathedrals come to life overnight, and the huge jeering letters that appeared on the upper tier at Shea the morning of Game 5 of the 73 World Series. In clandestine interviews, he was cryptic and vaguely superior. Yes, anything that ever anyone ever says about me is true. In the 80s, when some of the old masters began to make real money, he emerged. Just the right time, with just the right representation. He was profiled in Tony magazines and celebrated on TV for his upmarket grit. His work went up in pricey galleries and modern art museums. For the next 30 years, he lived comfortably in Amsterdam and Nice, where he learned about fine wines and private planes. When TC Commercial Bank offered him four and a half million dollars to put up a mural on a wall that would face their new public atrium, Slay came back to New York for the first time in years. He recreated a one train sitting on the elevated tracks above Inwood, circa 1972, loaded from front to back with the story of a young artist. And looming over it all was a kid with a spray can. The graffiti dripped onto the buildings in the streets. Even covered the clouds and the back of the young man's jacket. It was unveiled to the familiar sound of men in suits clapping. Then it was written up appreciatively in all the right places. The consensus was that he'd managed to capture the anarchy and the discipline of an essential era. The rough lyricism, the pious vulgarity. Big Apple's newest cultural landmark? There were metaphors and high rise parties. Slay lived on champagne and gushing compliments for a few weeks. The morning he was scheduled to fly back to France, a call came from TC Commercial. The mural had been defaced. They showed Slay the surveillance footage. A man had cut the chain-link fence that connected the atrium to the street. He slid his ladder and his bucket through the opening and worked all night, hauling buckets up and down, taking his time with each detail. It was slow going. He wasn't a young man. The result was striking. In this version of 1972 Inwood, Fitzley had been defeated. The trains had all been painted a flinty subway grey. The sides of the buildings and the trestle had all been cleaned up, neutralised. The clouds were natural, white puffs, and the kid with the spray can was gone, replaced with blue sky. The desecration was deliberate and total. The whole scene had been vandalized. What was illicit in the art had been illegally legitimised. Slay stared at the screen while the senior vice-president of the world's fourth-largest bank offered his deepest apologies for this horrific violation. Then the head of security found a good clear blow-up of the criminal's face. He was worn out with mustard-coloured spots on top of his bald head and the uneven scrub of grey beard extended down to his neck. It was Owen Fitzgibbon. Fitzgibbon Art Supply. The store had shut down in 1977. Slay had taken it as a victory. The first of many. He shrugged. No, it doesn't look familiar. Finn. This is End of the Road by William R. Solden, published at Bristol Noir. So many miles, how many has it been? Enough to wear down the heels of his state-issued boots and render his feet blistered and bloody. But he's getting close, he assures himself. Soon he'll reach her. In his mind he's been walking for years, though in reality it was only days ago the sirens ripped him from sleep, followed by the sharp metallic sounds of cells unlocking, doors screeching on their hinges. A minutes later, the swelling din of chaos. He hid under his bunk for hours, inhaling the stink of piss and smoke, watching the flurry of legs and feet. There was a guard he would never forget. Looked him square in the eyes, lines of terror mapping the poor bastard's face moments before a large inmate bludgeoned it into a dark red puddle with a lockbox lid only inches away from where he lay. He didn't belong there. He'd run someone over, a young boy. Had only taken his eyes off the roads for a moment. A goddamn accident. But he'd been drunk. And the government had enforced a zero-tolerance policy. Extreme mandatory sentencing laws him in the supermax upstate alongside the worst of the worst psychopaths of every stripe half transferred from the locust grove nut hatch when mental health funding was dumped into national defence what a joke he thinks there's no defence anymore hasn't been for a long time the newspapers had been saying for the last year that the threat was real an attack was imminent yet we shall rise to the challenge the puppets in Washington had said. For together we stand. Same glorified horseshit as always. Abstract patriotism used to stoke the spirits of the destitute and misinformed. Truth was, they had been unprepared. The national machismo, long since proven to be nothing but hot air leaking from a bloated mass. No longer anything tangible to back it up. At first he hadn't worried. It was beyond him, beyond them all. Just hype. Distract the people with fear, and they won't see what you're really up to. But it turned out to be true. And once the first flare lit up the eastern seaboard, it wasn't long before fire and disorder were the only absolutes. He still doesn't know what it was, or who was responsible. News on the inside was often second-hand, and had disintegrated into little more than white noise by the time it hit your ear. Not even the radio announcements offered any insight. It was ISIS. It was the Chinese. The Russians. Who knew? could be any damn one of them. They'd long ago severed their ties and burned their bridges. They were finally all alone. No one would come to their aid. He'd been wheeling a cart of sheets to the laundry when he overheard a final broadcast out of Boston on one of the SEALs' portable radios and knew that nothing would ever be the same again. The last words he heard over the airwaves before the signal went out were snivelling prayers and desperate pleas, then silence. Soon they lost power, but only after the alarms were sounded and a surge scrambled the prison system, disengaging the cells and precipitating a massacre. The explanations of who and how no longer matter, because in the end, and this surely is the end, there's only one thing he cares about, the screams of the dying guards had eventually fallen away, and when the alarms that blared from the towers and from the surrounding towns all went silent when all that remained were the skittering of rats across the iron tiers and the distant rumble in the earth, he crept back into the outside world and now he walks so many miles,' we're getting closer with each aching, blood-soaked step, Anna, the only uh, woman he ever truly loved. And the only person to ever love him. He was doing life without parole and thought he'd never see her again, never feel her body against his own. But as it turned out, fate, or perhaps something else, saw fit to rewrite his ending. And now he would be with her. The extent of the attack seemed to clear the land. No cars on the road, no people, all hiding indoors, He almost laughs at the irony of it. Him, finally free, and them, barricaded in prisons of their own, as if their thin walls could somehow save them from what was coming, from what was already here. His feet carry him along a desolate Route 19, a buckled two-lane highway that twists its way across the state from one corner to the other. And as he gets closer, fear sets in, and coils around him like a snake. Not fear of madmen, the ones wandering in murderous bands whose intermittent presence occasionally slows his progress, forces him to huddle in drain pipes or weed-choked ditches while he waits for them to move on into the darkness. No, he recently shared a cage with these same men. What he fears is the light, the one he saw in the distance from the window of his cell, again as he began his move south. Fears it will reach him before he reaches her. But soon he's made it. The sky flickers just beyond the trees. Lightning, he tells himself, but he knows better. The tremors in the ground have become more violent, and rattle his eyes in their sockets. Despite his exhaustion, it takes him less than an hour of strained labor with the shovel he took from a toppled shed. Another flicker, a rumble long and low. It's almost here, he thinks. And soon the spade scrapes across the lid. He pries the casket open, sees Anna's deflated remains and begins to weep. I made it, he says, and crawls in beside her. He draws her rotten bones into a foul embrace, kissing her mouldering lips and pulls the lid closed. Above them, what's left of the world turns to ash the end